Christmas today. We are obviously in a series called The Creed. It's about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I handed out booklets uh, that follow the series. If you didn't get one of those, know that there are booklets that follow the series in our Bible stacks in the back of the room. I will make this note. Uh, I thought that we were going to be walking through this in five weeks. Five weeks just proves to me to be insufficient. So we're actually going to walk through this in eight weeks. We're going to come back after Christmas and then in the new year for two weeks. And so you might have to condense your notes in your little booklets to account for the fact that we're going to go three extra weeks. So we'll, uh, we'll let you know how those weeks are going to be divided up in the future here. But let's head into week three of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, you know, for centuries, people in Europe, they looked upon the Western Sea, what we call the Atlantic Ocean, and they looked and saw the sun glittering upon the surface of the water, and they wondered... They wondered if there was anything beyond, anything on the other side of that endless horizon. You see, during that time, most people thought that you could literally sail off the face of the earth. Now, surprisingly, there are people today that actually carry that belief again that you could fall off the face of the earth, but that's for another time. There are people that believe that they could fall off the face of the earth, that as far as you could see was it. There was nothing beyond it. In fact, the, the king of Spain in this time, on the emblem of the coat of arms of Spain, there was an inscription that said, Ni plus ultra. And that phrase meant, there is nothing beyond. Spain was saying, we're it. When you get to us, there's nothing in those seas beyond us. And then one day, a young man named Christopher Columbus went west on those shiny waters. He sailed into the sunset, and people were pretty excited about that. And finally, after a long, long time, those sails reappeared on the horizon. People were exuberant. They shouted for joy, and Columbus announced to them that there was a land beyond the sea that was rich beyond their dreams. It spurred the king of Spain to change the coat of arms from ni plus ultra to just plus ultra. There is more beyond. And you know, for centuries... Ancient people have stood besides the dark hole that we call the grave. And they have watched remains of their loved ones lowered into the earth. And you would have to think they wondered, beyond the dark waters of death, is there anything beyond it? And then one day, a young explorer named Jesus descended into the darkness and the blackness of death, into those waters. He sailed off the face of the earth and crashed into hell. And people waited, and they wondered if anything might happen. Then finally, on resurrection morning, as the sun rose in the east, the Son of God stepped forward from the grave and declared that there is something beyond, that there is a paradise beyond your greatest expectations. There stood the resurrected Savior, saying that you don't have to fear Death has no longer a hold on you. Put your hope in me. Put your trust in me. Come and die and live through me. You know, we have been working our way through this ancient creed that we know as the Apostles' Creed. It's a confession of faith that believers have spoken for almost 1,900 years. All the way back to the second century, 140 AD, we find its origins. Generations of believers professing right belief in Jesus, grounding themselves and saying, this is what I believe. This is who I am. This is what I stand on. Today, 
there is a significantly important change that needs to happen in the hearts of believers. Culturally, as the church, those who profess in the name of Christ, where our faith must shed the trappings of feelings and emotions and become deep embedded truth that actually shapes our lives. That Christ wouldn't be just a passive thought that must be stirred up into focus, but a prevailing and supreme thought that is created from a devotion and an affection for Jesus in which all of my life must be filtered through his heart and his work and his name. That movement is the difference between cheering and confessing. A Jesus that is trapped in our emotions, that's trapped in our feelings, becomes someone at a distance that we cheer on when he gives us things that we like. And we find ourselves booing when things don't go our way. But if Jesus is the prevailing hope and truth of our lives, it's such a deep truth that we might even confess that what I like isn't really good for me. That what I prefer isn't the best for me. What I believe isn't always right. And so friends, I would just say this, we need far more confession in our life than we do becoming a cheerleader of Jesus when he gives us things that we want. The Apostle Creed is this humble confession of the prevailing and triumphal truth of Christ. I like the words of the song that we sang here, that old Rich Mullins song, I believe what I believe, it makes me who I am. No, I did not make it, but it is making me. The truth of God makes us. We don't shape the truth of God. And so far we've walked in this, in this creed through uh, several lines. We've, we've walked through, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We serve a God that is mighty, creator of both heaven and earth. He creates desires in us. It's a God who is personal and near, all while being powerful and mighty, still creating today, changing the hearts of men and women. This is not a vague God that I get a shape by my truth, by what I believe. But this is a specific God with distinct abilities and attributes that I must account for, that I must submit to, to shape me and build me, not because God wants to control me, but that he would want us to flourish by his work and his wisdom, that he might be glorified by how we live on this earth. And then last week, we, we walked through, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and this we found our confession of all three parts of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity or the triunity of God, who are co-equal, co-existing, and co-eternal. They've never had a beginning. They will never have an end. God has always existed in three forms as one God, three beings, Perfectly self-sufficient, all-loving. God did not need to create us to find love. He was perfectly content in himself. We were created to show his glory, to show his beauty. 
And we said in that that the roles of the Trinity, that the Father appoints, the Spirit applies, and the Son accomplished. And we see that in the birth of Christ, that the Father appointed that there would be a Savior, a need for a Savior. The Spirit applies, in this case, conception. God conceives a child, that the line of sin would be broken. That there would be divinity in that child. So the curse could be broken. And then the Son accomplished that mission on earth. And that's where we want to walk today. We want to look at what happened when Jesus stepped into the dark waters of death and proclaimed that there is more beyond. And so this is what we're going to walk through in the creed today. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, these lines are not without controversy. Not without controversy, the phrase descended to hell is a pretty provoking thought. It's a provoking lots of debate, and it can be quite confusing even just reading it. Like, that was a shock. Descended to hell, what does that even mean? And so we're going to be as thorough as we can in that explanation. And so here's our plan today. We like plans, so this is where we're going to head. We are going to divide up these ingredients and walk through them, the, the creed. We're going to divide them up into ingredients, highlight them individually, and then we're going to answer two questions. Why does it matter? And how does it affect how I live? Why does it matter and how does it change the way I live? And to do that, we're going to walk in a lengthy piece of, piece of scripture that we find in the gospel of Luke in chapter 23 and 24. And we're going to be skipping around in that a little bit, so just stay with me. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Luke 23. If you don't have your Bibles, you can use your phones or you can follow us on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 1 in Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now the creed is reminding us here of this concrete historical circumstance of the suffering of Christ, of the death of Christ. Jesus, or the creed, just like the gospel, goes out of its way to root itself into history. That the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ wasn't some once-upon-a-time story, but it actually happened. It's interesting that the creed names two people that aren't God. They name Mary and a guy named Pilate. And so what is the creed doing? It's grounding us in history. It's saying that the execution of Jesus occurred when Pontius Pilate existed. It would be like this. That execution occurred when Evan Bayh was governor of Indiana. That's the only governor I can think of right now in Indiana. That's probably, that's wrong. That's from a long time ago. It says that he was crucified when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was appointed as leader of Judea. In the seven or eight years that he led and looked over, was given power by the Caesar, that's when Jesus died. And so this fact points to it really happened. It's not a myth. It's not just a 
beautiful story. It's not a parable. It's not an illustration. It's history. That is why the creed puts Pontius Pilate in there. And in that death, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was spat on, he was beaten on his way to the cross, and it was a horrific scene. And when we read about Jesus' suffering and how people turned on him, we may think like, well, if I knew what I know about Jesus and I existed in that time, I wouldn't be doing that. I would stand up for Jesus. I would say, no, what are we doing here? This guy, he's good. He's the Savior. We are fooling ourselves if we don't think this is us. We are delusional if we think that in some ways we are not the people that spat and mocked Jesus. Our sinful nature is no different than their sinful nature. These are our people who put Jesus on the cross. This is us. And it exactly, it's exactly why Jesus had to be crushed. And we see that in Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put on death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, were cruci- they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not, they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over his head, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God. Since Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's lights failed and the curtains of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled from this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all this, his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The creed reminds us that he was crucified. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. And in doing so, the creed reminds us, it is pointing us to the agonizing and humiliating, embarrassing means of death of Christ. You see that in this time, the cross was a dubious instrument of punishment. It was the worst of all punishments for the worst of all criminals. It was for the outcast. 
And it represented the worst punishment that the greatest judicial system of the time could hand to its people. And to the Jewish people, it would be especially horrendous, especially gross. It was the ultimate sign of being cast off and cut off. And that is exactly why God chose it. It's exactly why God chose the cross, because Jesus had to become an outcast so that we could be gathered in. On the cross, Jesus had to bear God's ban, his curse, his abhorrence of sin, the fullness of his wrath. He had to be treated as a sinner. We remember the words of Paul that say, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross had to be looked upon by the Father as the one in rebellion, as the one deserving of judgment, because Jesus was on the cross for us. And that cross is the instrument of punishment. The the horror of the cross is not just a physical pain, but you have a pain that comes from the fact that Jesus felt his Father turn his face from him. He is the object of his father's wrath. He is crucified. And by that death, we are redeemed. This creed causes us to meditate, to realize what the cross was, to realize what the cross cost him, to realize what the cross accomplished. And then Jesus was dead and buried, like dead to the point. Jesus died. Somebody put him his body into a grave. That's how dead he was. He, he didn't just die on the cross and come, he was dead dead. And they put him in a, a tomb, and, and then the question comes, where did he go? Where did Jesus go? The creed says that he descended into hell. Some of the variations of the creed say that he descended into the dead. Some variations of the creed remove it altogether. So how do we best understand what happened here? Did Jesus descend to hell? There's a lot of debate around it. And look, there's lots of depth that we could get into here. But the best way that we could understand this is to realize what this is not saying. What this is not saying. So know this, there is no verbiage in Scripture that compels that Jesus went to hell. We we don't find that in Scripture. Uh, Peter gives us an indication that after the death of Christ, he did some testifying. He, he professed belief. And so in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, uh, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So this is saying that after his death, that Jesus testified or proclaimed to people who were in bondage, who were in prison, And so what does that mean? Well, here's what what we can say. This is not hell. It's not hell. And there's a debate on the words Haiti and Shiloh. Uh, Jesus never descended into hell. He was never under somebody else's authority. He was not under Satan's authority at all. He was not a victim in his death. He was a conqueror. What we can say is this, that there was some separation from the Father, between the Father and Jesus on some level, because on the cross, Jesus utters, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus has never called his father God before that circumstance. He's always referred to God as my father, the father. But on the cross, we see my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment that God laid on him all the sins of the world. And the Father, being perfect and holy and right, cannot be in the presence of sin. And so at most and at minimum, we can say that Jesus descended into some separation from his Father because of the effect of being a sin ransom. He actually died. Not so he could just conquer sin, but the grave. He ripped off the gate of hell that the grave would not have a hold on humanity anymore those who trust in the name of Christ. But the grave could not hold him. Because in Luke 24, 1, it says, But on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you? While he he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Jesus was alive. He had risen from the grave. And in his creed, it reminds us that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So the question is, why does any of that matter? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that he suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried that he descended into hell, that he rose again on the third day. Why does any of that matter? It matters because it should compel us to our utter ineptness and capability of doing much in the way of pleasing God. If God had to leave his rightful position as king of the cosmos, a creator king, if he needed to leave his splendor his position to intercede and humiliate himself by becoming flesh to do what you and I could not do, namely, earn right standing in front of God, it A, reflects on how much he loves creation, and B, compels how much that creation messed it up. If you were capable, God would not need to do any of this. But we're not. And listen, we know it. Our pride has made us delusional into thinking that this life is all about me. The problem is your heart speaks otherwise. The lacking in you speaks otherwise. The fact that you can never find peace or contentment and flourishing in this life speaks otherwise. But your pride contends to you that none of that matters. Just keep pressing forward. We toss it aside And so we keep deceiving ourselves. We, in our brokenness, in our disease of sin that rages in our hearts and our minds, we are sinners not because we do sinful acts, 
We do sinful acts because we are sinners. This disease destroys us. And that sort of disease makes us bend towards ourselves to make this life about us. And then we throw God some cookies when he gives us some things that we want. But the message of the cross is that you can't. And you couldn't, and you never will. You could never earn righteousness. You could never earn salvation. You will never find contentment. You will never find peace or flourishing. It is not in your skill set. And you can have it for a moment. And that's only because God created in you in his image with his attributes. But you are not self-sufficient and you never have been. There is something deeply wrong in us and it took God dying for us like us to bring healing and peace. Scriptures say, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us died for us while we are yet sinners. That even our in our delusions of self-sufficiency, Christ died for you. And this is my story. And I know it's the story of lots of you in this room. That there was a belief in you that it was about what I could do and what I could earn. And it never added up and it was always lacking. But I figured the next thing that I did, the next thing that I learned, the next book that I read... The next cause that I serve, the next great sermon that I listened to, the next best relationship that I found, that would fix me. And it never did. And it spiraled its way into depression, suicide, thoughts ending it all. A voice in me that said, you're not good enough. Nobody likes you. And you might as well give up. But God in his great love, came into my life like he did yours. And he said, why are you trusting yourself? Why are you trusting yourself? There was a brokenness that was present in me that even confessing my sins to others seemed better than living this way. And so here's what I would say to you. Here's what I would compel to you on why this matters. There is a day in which God, if he hasn't already, will break you to understand that you can't. We in our pride think that we can, and we keep doing it. So I'm here today to say this. I don't trust my wisdom. I don't follow my heart. What I feel isn't what's right. My healing and my flourishing and my sufficiency is believing what God has said to be true about me and the wisdom of the life that he's given to me. That's why it matters. The second reason why it matters is because God so loved us that he ventured into the deep darkness of death, so deep in his descending, that it shows us how bright and high the new life is in his resurrection. If you just think of God's story, the steps grow deeper and deeper and steeper and steeper. The first, the Son of God decides to step away from his divine advantages. Then he steps down again. He made himself into nothing. He took the form of a child 
Then he took the form of a very servant, like the supreme ruler of the world did not come into the world to rule it, but to serve it. And then he steps down even further to be mocked and beaten, suffered. And then again, he steps down again deeper to give himself away to death. And then he descends into the grave. The utter depths and darkness that Christ had to step and descend to and towards should reveal to us just how bright and high life is through him as a resurrected Savior. How far he descended should give us a clue on how much better life is when it is lived through and by him. And so the last question is this, is how does this change the way that I live? How does this change the way that I live? It's the themes that we always keep coming back to. Does this compel me to desire to be less? This should. If Christ would humble himself in this way and descend in so many steps, does it compel me to live less, to be less, to not keep making this about me? Does it compel me to surrender anything? That Christ might surrender his prestige and his divine advantages to become a servant child for us? Am I willing to sacrifice anything of worth in my life? Does it compel me to trust his wisdom instead of my own? Does it have any effect that I might say, God, you know a little bit more than I do, and that we might heed to his wisdom? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again. Nobody's making that up. Nobody made it up. It actually happened, and it matters. And today, we're going to come as a family around the table of communion to celebrate what Christ has done for us, to take on our sin to die on the cross, that we might by faith live through him. And so we're going to enter a time where we're going to come around the table to celebrate what Christ did. We'll, 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 We'll celebrate it through the juice that represents the blood of Christ that he shed for our sins, through the bread that represents the broken body of Christ that suffered on the cross. If you're in here today and you've never come to realize the depths in which Christ descended to serve you, today the best day to surrender your life to his lordship. And so what I want you to do is is just to take some moments, some time here and reflect as a family to get your heart right with God. And then whenever you're ready, you're welcome to come around the table, take the the bread and the juice and take it to your seat and, and just speak to God, pray to God. Now you'll notice that we have Three different tables. We've got lots of different people in this room. If you're closer over here, we've got a table over here for you. If you're in the center, a table here. You guys in the front over there, a table there. And then there's two tables in the back for you guys. And we say this every time we do communion. If you have not made a decision to follow Christ in your life, like know that we love that you're here. But know that Scripture compels that this is a time for those who profess faith in Christ as a family. And so it's okay just to sit there and contemplate. It's okay just to sit there in wondering awe of who this God is. 
And so I'm going to pray. The band's going to come out. Whenever you're ready, join us at the table. Father, we just come before you today, and we thank you for your truth. We thank you that it's historical. We thank you that it's not a myth, it's not an illustration, that it actually happened. And so, Lord, will you break our hearts that we might know the implications of a God leaving his throne and descending to the earth to be a servant, to descend into the grave, what that actually means for us. We can't, and we couldn't, and we never will. And God, that we might find the beauty and the hope in a Savior who has. That we might trust in him and not in ourselves. That we might die to our own preferences and live through him. And so Jesus, just thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you give for us. Thank you for this family, this body of believers. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your awesome name. Amen.